0: Hello, Clear Skies Ahead listeners. This is Kelly Savoy, and I'm hoping you can take a moment of your time to rate and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. We have produced over 60 episodes, and you can help us reach even more individuals that will benefit from the diverse experiences shared by our guests. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this new episode. Welcome to the American Meteorological Society's podcast series, Clear Skies Ahead, conversations about careers in meteorology and beyond. I'm Kelly Savoy and I'm here with Rex Horner and we'll be your hosts. We're excited to give you the opportunity to step into the shoes of an expert working in weather, water and climate sciences.
1: We're happy to introduce today's guest, William Turner IV, a PhD student in atmospheric science at the University of California, Davis. Welcome, Will. Thanks very much for joining us on our program.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to share some experiences with you all and the listeners.
0: Will, could you tell us a bit about your educational background and what sparked your interest in STEM?
2: Yes, so, I guess a funny story um, growing up I initially wanted to be a dentist and you know family oh. they were super excited they was like yes we're finally going to have a doctor in the family or some form of doctor and um, but then in middle school I was able to save up enough money to purchase a book from the book fair and it was uh, the weather guide book uh, and I still have this book too on my shelf. And just to see how the book was coming to life um every day, just the clouds in the sky, the storms. Um, I was like, Yes, I definitely want to study the weather. And so I went home and I was like, Yes, uh
0: You broke the bad news that's to the family. Right. Yeah,
2: broke the bad <laughs> news. <laughs> my mom, she was like, a meteorologist. It's like, what is this? We're supposed to be, you know, dentists or something, but Yeah, so I wanted to be a meteorologist after that. And so that kind of struck interest in the field. And then also, um, I really enjoyed math growing up. Um, It was just something about solving problems and getting to a solution. I enjoyed that. And fast forward, well, I went to undergrad at the University of Michigan. and. Majored in earth system science and engineering, which is just fancy for meteorologists. Um, and again, fancy, just for weatherman. And I minored in mathematics and Afro-American and African studies.
0: So how did you um, choose Michigan? Did you do a lot of research on universities or is, was that one interesting to you for a certain reason?
2: So being the first in my family to go to college, first one in my family to leave home, um, or just to, again, to explore college, um, I really wanted to take that step and leave home. And I should have said that earlier. I'm from Nashville, Tennessee. And I was like, yeah, I can use education to explore the world, um, broaden my horizons and, I applied to a lot of schools outside of Tennessee and within uh, Tennessee. And another interesting story, I initially wanted to do both music and meteorology. And I got the opportunity to audition for University of Michigan's music school, but they said no. Um, But I did get admitted um, for atmospheric sciences and I did want to pursue that.
0: Nice. What what instrument did you play?
2: Yes. And I still play the alto saxophone.
0: Nice. Great.
2: Yes. And growing up, Nashville, Tennessee, is full of music. And um, it was just great. If we got some time, here's the musical story. And I'll try to shorten it a little bit. So growing up, this was in elementary, after we played the recorder, uh, you know, it's time to choose an instrument to play. And I told my mom, I was like, I want to play an alto saxophone. And my mom was like, well, looks like you're going to have to call your dad. (laughs) And I was like, okay. So I told my dad, hey, dad, I want to play the alto saxophone. He was like, all right, I'll get you a saxophone. Months had passed before I could get a saxophone. And I was playing uh, the saxophone with, well, and in band practice, I was playing on a, pencil. Um, (laughs) And it got to the point that my band director, he said, if you don't get a saxophone by such and such time, then you're going to have to choose another art. And I was like, no, no, I really want to play the saxophone. And then eventually um, a saxophone showed up at home. And I remember hooking the saxophone up and playing all the merry go Rhymes. Mary had a little lamb, I see all the songs marching around my apartment complex, and my friends were marching behind me, dancing along. And it was like, yes, it was a great um, moment that really shows that, you know, I do have a musical talent. I just have to continue to craft it.
0: Right. I'm happy to hear you're still playing, too. That's great.
1: Yes. That's a wonderful story, Will. And I think it shows your tenacity and your perseverance, which... I am positive, have shown up later in your career, and we'll we'll get into that. I want to start with, uh, either in high school and or in college, what extracurricular opportunities you were able to find or pursue that you felt were beneficial to becoming the meteorologist or the mathematician that you wanted to be, and eventually in college, I'm sure you started to find an idea of what sort of extracurricular opportunities would help you secure a job in your profession. So let me know, maybe starting in high school, were there any specific classes
2: or other
1: opportunities that helped you out?
2: Absolutely. And so in high school, well, just thinking about this question, the first thing that pops in mind is how it's so important to be abroad or just to grow up and be introduced to broad things, um, because it, you know, develops your character and, um, just helps you, uh, think about the world differently when you have varied experiences. Um, and a lot of that, uh, was music. So, um, with music, I had the opportunity to, um, play in bands, um, at my home high school, which was National School of Arts, um, played in jazz band, uh, classical, uh, band and pop ensemble. But I also had the experience where I could um do all my sports activities at another high school. And at that high school I had the opportunity to be in the marching band. And it was such a a different experience, but so fun because I got to dance as well as play music. And uh dancing, you know, it's um it's just a uh, so oftentimes, it's entertainment. You know how we engage with the audience, not necessarily just performing. Um, and so, those were great things. But also, there's this uh, mentoring and tutoring aspect. So, I definitely tutored um, mathematics classes in high school, as well as in undergrad. And um, again, it's that uh, being able to just share that knowledge and help someone else succeed. And also just share the experience that um, we're all in here together. Let's go on and enjoy.
1: Yeah. Math is often we've heard from meteorologists, one of the most difficult parts of learning their science and has been a, a huge roadblock for a lot of people, I'm sure. And it has maybe deterred some people from even pursuing weather as a career, so it's wonderful that you were able to mentor and tutor other people that were interested, uh, maybe either in meteorology or any other science or field that required math. What was it like tutoring folks? Was it, I, I assume they must have felt pretty empowered once they, once they were able to learn it, and I, I just wonder what it was like uh, being able to connect and work with and empower your
2: students right and you touched on a very um good point um how math math will put up a wall in front of anybody pursuing what they enjoy and it's unfortunate and it can even start off just how we change the language we always talk about math instead of just saying mathematics because mathematics sounds so much more challenging than the word math So we already tell ourselves that we can't do mathematics by shortening the word to math. And I'll go ahead and open up to that. um, As much as I enjoyed mathematics throughout high school, I took AP, calculus, um, tutored folks. I get to undergrad and I received my first E on my transcript. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I am very exceptional (laughs) (laughs) when it comes to mathematics. That's what that is. It's very exceptional. And it turns out, oh my goodness, I didn't even get the, the credits because I received my first failing grade in mathematics. And it was crushing. And that class was calculus two. And I remember vividly, everybody told me, do not take calculus two. (laughs) <laughs> um, during the school year. Take it over the summer somewhere else.
0: You didn't listen. You yes. didn't listen.
2: <laughs> didn't listen. And maybe, uh, I guess I was too stubborn. <laughs> and then I learned the lesson. But coming out of that, of course it was stressful and received that grade, but I knew that I was still interested in pursuing atmospheric science. And I had to say, okay, what can I do uh, to still pursue that dream? And that was, take the class again, go ahead and really practice more and continue, like persevere and just stay determined to pursue that dream. And it turns out that I got the minor in mathematics and and I'm still pursuing, you know, the STEM career.
0: That's a great story. And, you know, when you say you failed calculus too, being so... Good at math. I'm sure you were not alone. Yes. (laughs) You and a bunch of other people like myself who aren't even good at math were probably like, oh man, I can't do this.
2: There's a calculus too. Oh my goodness. (laughs) But and then from the tutoring aspect, there is something that really, you know, it just feels good to help other people and to see them light up. When I see students like a light bulb lights up and they finally understand some information and that they can really relate. That is a, a warming moment. And I'm glad I can be that person for them.
0: So speaking of math, you went to undergrad, you graduated. And was it at that time that you became a high school math teacher in Nashville? And um, if so, you know, tell us a little bit about that experience.
2: Yes, absolutely. Teaching, I'm telling you, high schoolers, teachers have stories for days. (laughs) We've heard it's like a battleground sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we have to support our teachers. Yes, teachers are great. And teaching was insilius. Some of the best, I guess the word I'm trying to think of is just some of the best feelings. Uh, comes out of teaching. And well, I guess to back up, so yeah, I was a, well, after undergrad, um, it was such a challenging experience that I told myself that I don't want anybody else to struggle as much as I did um, if they chose to go to um, undergrad, study a STEM field or anything. And so I told myself, I want to go teach before I continue on with my graduate degree. And I said, what better place to teach than at home? And so I applied directly to the school district and they were happy uh, to see a Black person applying to be a math teacher um, at a high school. And it was like, yes, we need you. Please come on in. And as challenging as it was, it was an amazing experience just to see students grow. And I think we all get caught up I mean, that we want this immediate satisfaction today at this moment. But with teaching, um, it's a learning process. And it's great to see how students have grown, how students have changed over the course of their high school career. Um, Even when I visit home, I still see my students completely grown to this day. And it's like, wow, you've grown up and you're doing great things. Now you were a knucklehead, Back in the day, but look at that, you know, the roots have grown to this new tree. Um, And it's
1: amazing. So Will, you taught high school math in Nashville for almost five years, as far as I'm aware. And during that time, you also earned a Master of Education from Lipscomb University. While you were teaching, I believe, full-time, let us know what was that experience like and how did it influence your approach to teaching?
2: Yes. And so because I got an undergrad in engineering um and well, bachelor's in engineering, um, it didn't qualify or I wasn't licensed to be a full uh teacher. But instead there was this program, uh that they called it a transitional licensor program, where As long as you have a bachelor's degree, you can enroll in this transitional licensure program to get your teaching credential. And so I did that at Lipscomb University. And it turns out when I finished the program, Lipscomb said, well, you actually have, I believe, two or three more classes to take um, to get your master's in education. And I was like, oh, okay. well, it only makes logical sense that I do continue Uh uh, to get that. And what I learned in terms of the teaching pedagogy and how to uh, relate with kids and uh, to teach, it was definitely very helpful. Um, there can never be too much information um, in how we can help each other. And that program definitely helped me um, be a better teacher.
1: Is there a specific lesson that you that really took to heart, You know, something that maybe you thought about Either radically differently, or just hadn't thought about at all as a aspect of teaching that the master program, you know, helped you understand. That's right. Now,
2: one interesting thing is that there's a lot of research, and then there's the applications. Mm-hmm. And one challenging aspect is in a way, meshing the two together, because there's no way that we can analyze every problem or use one application to fix every problem. Um, and I think what's good about it is that you still have, you can always make a change um, in how you're applying um, because it may work for one class, but it may not work for the other class. And that's one of the beauties um, about uh, teaching and what I've learned at that program.
0: Did you have to teach different grades or was it, you know, you, you taught 10th grade, ninth, or was it a combination?
2: That's right. So I taught, um, for the whole year, it was a single grade. And I did teach, I think my last two years, I taught freshmen. but then the years before that, I think I started teaching geometry at first. And then I was uh, teaching both algebra two and calculus at one point, and then I ended up on algebra. It was kind of all over.
0: Ah, oh, well, that's super admirable for you to uh, go into the trenches and become a high school teacher, as you <laughs> as you said, it was <laughs> definitely um, a wonderful experience, but yet challenging. So, um, about when did you decide to pursue a doctoral degree? And how did that come about?
2: That's right. So here's another experience, I guess for all the undergrads out there or the people that are looking forward to pursuing a graduate degree, um, I didn't get accepted my first time. So again, it was another quote unquote failure moment, but not to look at it as a failure, but an experience in terms of growth. So what can I do? Uh, to be a better candidate next time around. And so I initially applied for grad school, um, I think in my third or fourth year of teaching. And it was just a a plethora of schools throughout the U.S. And they all said no. And I was like, hmm, okay. Uh, Well, (laughs) after moping for about, a week, I said, man, Turner, you got to get up. So it's like, go ahead and figure out how you can be a better candidate next time around. And so I remember emailing um, a lot of the programs asking them for advice on how to be a better candidate. And they actually emailed me back saying, why don't you continue to uh, take classes, math classes, and demonstrate your potential for success in graduate school? And no, I like, okay. And so I applied again, and UC Davis uh, saw my potential, and here I am today, pursuing that graduate degree. And you've been at
1: UC Davis for over seven years, I believe, as you've worked Ooh. as a teaching assistant, a graduate student researcher, your uh, current responsibilities- all of these different roles as you've worked your way towards um, higher degrees. That's right. I am curious, what, what do you like most, now that you've had some more experience at UC Davis, wh- what do you like most about their program that, that you would recommend to someone else that's saying, you know, hey, Will, I'm interested in going to, to you know, a grad program, I'm looking at UC Davis, but I'm also looking at these other colleges. What's special about the UC Davis program?
2: All right. So here put the pub in for UC Davis. (laughs) All right. So this this atmospheric science program has been great. Um, The thing, you know, atmospheric sciences, first off, it's very small, um, everywhere, small program. And what's great about a small program is that you really get to know your cohort, and know your other lab mates. And working in a lab, atmospheric science, or just anywhere, it's that immediate, um, you can have moments where you're just tired and you can talk about, lash out um, out loud about graduate student issues, and you'll have your graduate uh, student buddies uh, listening there and supporting you. And in addition, when you're going hard into research, You want to take a break? The program's not working. Uh, Again, you got your lab mates that are there to help you. We can't know everything, but we can go out and get, you know, use our friends and lab mates and all these other things for resources to help us quickly answer some questions. So for example, I feel really competent using MATLAB, but we know in the field MATLAB is kind of Going away, there's a lot of open source resources like Python. And so I've been told many times that I need to boost up uh, my Python skills. So when I am running a program in Python, I'm definitely going to ask my lab mate just to give me some, some pointers to something to help me along the way. And that's what I think um, I really enjoy about um, the UC Davis program is that there is this sense of community um, that the grad students will help you out.
0: It sounds like the peer, you know, the peer support is one of the best things about being in a PhD program, as you said, especially with a small program. That's right. And, you know, g- give us an idea of what some positions or jobs that PhD students have. Like, you know, if if our listeners are interested in, you know, getting a higher degree and they're not very familiar with what's involved in being a Ph.D. program, um, you know, I'm assuming that there are some paid positions to, you know, help you with living expenses and so forth because Ph.D. programs are, are pretty long. That's right. You know, you're going to be there for a few years. Right. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: So the first uh, thing that pops into mind, a T.A., and that's a teaching assistant. And I'm pretty sure it has to work the same across um, all universities, but you can be in one department, but you can TA in a different department from your home department. So, for example, uh, during my first quarter at Davis, um, I was a TA for a math class and that was in a different um, department, not in atmospheric science. Um, and then in addition to that, I was also teaching assistant for an environmental systems management class and um, another teaching assistant for an intro to atmospheric sciences. And that was one of the best classes I TA'd because we got to run experiments uh, just to demonstrate the fundamental uh, concepts of the atmosphere. And it was for, it was a general elective class. So we had students from history, history, English, the sciences. And yeah, so that was one of the most fun classes to teach. I, I just want to uh, pause for a
1: moment and talk about why those intro classes are so important. Like you said, because there's people that this might be their only meteorology course they take. That's right. In their whole life, um, because it's an elective. And we all know we've had those electives. I took a class on animal migration once in undergrad. And you take a few others just because, again, as you said, Will, there's this understanding that you want to have a well-rounded, broad curriculum, and so right. colleges build in these these um, elective classes. And, and I agree with you; it, it sounds super important, and to teach that intro class for those reasons.
2: That's right, and to hear how students at the end uh, say that, "Wow, I didn't know." Meteorology, or there was so much uh, going on with the weather. Just to predict the weather, there's so much. Um, so it's very good.
0: And as a PhD student, now that you're kind of immersed in atmospheric sciences, what do you think is one of the biggest challenges that you face in your field?
2: <laughs> you know, this question the biggest challenge. And the funny thing is when I hear this question, I'm like, man, it's the challenge just being a grad student.
1: <laughs> getting through every day is the
2: challenge. That's right. <laughs> but uh, the other challenge, as a growing atmospheric scientist, the problems are getting harder and harder to solve. And with those uh, difficult problems, it's as if everybody is looking at us, atmospheric scientists, to solve climate change, and that's you know of course one of the biggest problems and it's just like woo that's uh that's a challenge and if I may ask people that are listening you know it's a it's a collective effort you know if we can form a collective, then perhaps there is a chance that we can do
0: a better job
2: that's right. <laughs> <laughs> So, Will,
1: this is a perfect segue into what I want to talk about next with you, Will, touching on long-term climatological trends and social issues because we know that climate change is tied up in policy, personality, science, so many areas of our modern world. You are working on a thesis at the moment, which has, I believe some of the research has appeared in part in the AMS journal, Weather, Climate, and Society, The working title of your thesis, correct me if I'm wrong, is The Impact of Droughts on the Transatlantic Slave Trade. I want to know how you formulated this topic, what your research process is like, and how you became interested in, more broadly, the intersection of social science and meteorology.
2: Yes, and this is a pact. That's a packed question. So let's let's
1: break it down first. Yeah. Let's break it down piece by piece first. Let's talk about uh, from the backwards forwards. How did you become interested in the interdisciplinary field of of meteorology and social science?
2: That's right. And so growing up, and I guess this goes back to the story at the beginning, um, that kind of interests me in meteorology. We all have that common story that we experienced a storm or saw a lightning bolt or um, experienced something severe that really just gravitated us to study more or be more curious about the weather. And in 1998, um, after I read the weather guidebook, um, a tornado came through my hometown in Nashville, Tennessee, April 16th, 1998. And I was like, wow, this is it. I really need to study the weather because it impacted my city, my hometown. It impacted people. Um, and, you know, it was just so interesting to see Mother Nature in rare form. And so that was that moment where I say, yes, this is, I need to study this. And then fast forward, so in undergrad, uh, so I got the degree in Earth System Science and Engineering. And I minored in Afro-American and African Studies. And I had the opportunity to do research during my fifth year. And I was really, I remember vividly walking around campus trying to figure out how could I bridge both atmospheric science and African Studies into a research project. just walking around and it dawned on me that, okay, well, during the slave trade, transatlantic slave trade, um, the boats were not motorized. So they had to depend on the wind and ocean currents to get from continent to continent. And so I was like, oh, okay. So yeah, let's try to, let's do that research. And I brought it up to a professor and he was like, yeah, go ahead and try to study them more. So that's where the idea originated. And then fast forward to grad school, my current advisor, Terry Nathan, uh, I remember it was either our first or second meeting. And he just asked, he was like, all right, so what do you want to do? Like, what do you want to research? And of course, tell me about yourself and all that. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, well, I am interested in studying the weather and the Transatlantic slave trade. So how the weather impacted the Transatlantic slave trade. And he lit up like a Christmas tree. And that made me feel so comfortable um, that somebody is supporting my idea um, and wants to see me uh, continue with their research. And he was asking so many questions and I was just like, oh my goodness, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know.
0: It's a very interesting topic that I don't think a lot of people have researched. So, you know, how does it impact it? What, what what are some of the things that you've uncovered that showed the impact on the slave trade?
2: So one story um, that's, and I put this in quotes, kind of a good story, um, how the weather directly impacted the transatlantic slave trade. So we had the slave ship Enterprise, uh, which was set to set sail from Washington DC to South Carolina in 1835. And they got caught up in a storm and ended up on the island of Bermuda. And Bermuda was a free British colony where the enslaved were set free. And so uh, the slaves then, or the enslaved, they had to, they actually had a choice whether they wanted to stay free on the island of Bermuda or go back to the mainland. And so it's a good story in that the weather forced them to the island of Bermuda and become free, but the other side, you know, is this human side. Um, we had people that were forcefully um, taken away from their families and placed on shackles and just going through all kind of trauma. Um, and so we don't know um, what it felt like or what it what it feels like to you know be snatched away from your home just to be relocated again. And so for the couple of enslaved individuals that decided to go back to the mainland, it was probably hoped that they um, could be reunited with their family um, before. But stories like that throughout the research are, I'd say, very interesting. You know, it's kind of a tough subject at times, but it's a learning moment.
0: Yeah, and I think I read a little bit um, in an article about... um... The research that you did and how you know certain types of weather droughts dry weather um, also decreased uh, the need for individuals to be brought over because it affected the agriculture and obviously the crops and so forth A- am I correct about that?
2: Yes uh, so what we find we actually related through this whole research process the historians have crafted the story that droughts um, impacted the transatlantic slave trade. But they did this from a qualitative perspective. And so they analyzed ship logs, journals, chronicles um, that um, recorded series of droughts. And then they, um, series of droughts, and also the number of enslaved individuals that were transported from port to port. And so they made this qualitative assessment that droughts did impact that. And so we were looking at it from a quantitative perspective. But we all know slave trade took place, 1500s, all the way 1866. And so our instrumental weather data was very limited. So we tried to figure out, you know, what else could be operating in the the climate system that could influence drier conditions? And we found out that El Nino is linked to drought conditions in our state of region, West Africa. And so what we found that El Nino induced droughts or El Nino induced drought conditions did lead to a decrease in the number of enslaves enslaved transported from West Africa to the Americas. And the thing is, the hard question is, well, what in society was going on that could allow for that decrease? Was it that it was more challenging to raid for slaves um, during drier conditions? Or could it be that due to dry conditions happening in an area, people were forced to move and then therefore folks that were raiding into these lands, they were already depleted because uh, folks were already relocated. Um, so that's one of the, the most challenging questions that we do need more social sciences, historians, um, trying to seize out that relationship.
1: I'm sure that there will be more research on this topic, Will. And thank you so much for giving us the outline and some specifics of what you've discovered thus far. I do want to touch on before we move on, however, at the end of your study in the AMS journal, there is a specific word that you and your co-authors use as a partial conclusion and call to action. And I wanted to hear from you why that word was chosen and how it, how it came to you.
2: Yes, this word is Sankofa. And Sankofa is this West African Adinkra term that simply means look back, move forward. And that word means a lot to me because we have to learn from our past, not necessarily dwell in it, because we can't change anything in the past, but we can learn these lessons and understand how we got here today so that we can do better and have a better future for tomorrow. And this whole call to action is, oftentimes when we hear history, we're just like, oh, and history is repeating itself, but it doesn't have to. Um, Again, let's just take those lessons mainly the good ones and really apply those so that we can continue to make forward progress for tomorrow. I can see that you've applied this lesson personally in
1: your life. And I'm glad you were able to share it through your study with a broader audience that I'm sure will also benefit from that that wisdom and that knowledge.
0: So well getting back to you know your your education and your doctoral candidacy for our student listeners and job seekers, um, what types of positions are available in, in education and the type of research that you're doing? You know, maybe in um, the cross between, you know, weather and climate and society. What's the future job outlook like?
2: Future job look, I'm still looking to. <laughs> so if you know any job prospects out there, <laughs> I'll be on the market soon. <laughs> no, so research is ever growing Um, and being in an academic institution is a great uh, place for research. Um, Again, this topic was one thing, it was very difficult um, because bridging the gap between history and science. Um, But the other side was that um, being in an academic institution that uh, gave me the space to work out that research project, um, made it happen. Um, and so um, there's always research opportunities at a university. The hardest part is finding a mentor or a professor to help guide you along their research path. And I must say, um, I lucked out working with Terry Nathan and I'm grateful to have him um, as a mentor, um, but that shouldn't be a reason not to pursue research in the event that you don't um, find that perfect or just find that great mentor. Um, you just have to keep looking because uh, great mentors are out there. Um, and so definitely research in academia, that's it. Now um, I have learned too that there are many research positions outside of academia and with that especially from my background, to research and education. Um, We're in a, I feel that we're in a time where wherever we go, we have a moral obligation to share our research with the general public, period. We can be in the grocery store to talk about climate change. Just a small aspect in those three minutes uh, while we're standing in the grocery store line. We can educate those um, and just having a random conversation. And I think um, just knowing that research is applicable outside.
1: I would say that when I speak about the field that I work in, the number one question I get is when, when people ask it, they sort of lean towards me, almost like they're talking about a conspiracy and they say, so (laughs) is climate change real? And they look at me like they're they're waiting for an answer. And not that they don't think it's real, but they're just waiting for the definitive answer from someone that they feel knows information about this. And I think it's very valuable, like you said, Will, to just even take small opportunities to share what you know, because it may not be something that someone else knows. And it may be very valuable for that person and would widen that person's perspective. Right. So thank you for sharing that call to action as well. Now, Will, uh, we're we're so grateful for everything you've told us about your career. However, before you go, we like to get a little bit off topic and ask a fun question before we wrap up the show. You know, speaking of grocery stores, I know you're from Nashville. (laughs) Nashville is full of wonderful food what is one of your favorite foods and why
2: does it have a special place in your heart? Oh, man. Uh, Well, not necessarily a favorite food, but a favorite meal. Is that, uh, could I answer that? Yeah, that's acceptable. (laughs) That's acceptable. Right.
0: Absolutely. So
2: I'm from the South and Southern at heart and it's gotta be meatloaf sweet potatoes, macaroni and cheese, turnip greens, and some hot water cornbread.
1: All right, Will, um, mm, yes. I'll, I'll meet you. Those sound delicious. Uh, I'll meet you in Nashville in about 24 hours, and let's go have that meal. Yeah, let's go. That sounds incredible. Thank you so much, Will. We've been speaking with William Turner Fourth, a PhD student in atmospheric science at the University of California, Davis, Thanks so much for joining us, Will, and sharing all of your experiences with us.
2: Yes, thank you for having me. This is great.
0: Well, that's our show for today. Please join us next time, rain or shine.
1: Clear Skies Ahead, Conversations About Careers in Meteorology and Beyond is a podcast by the American Meteorological Society. Our show is produced by Brandon Kroos and edited by Peter Trepke. Technical direction is provided by Peter Killalay. Our theme music is composed and performed by Steve Savoy, and the show is hosted by Rex Horner and Kelly Savoy. You can learn more about the show online at www.ametsoc.org slash clear skies, and can contact us at skypodcast at ametsoc.org if you have any feedback or would like to become a future guest.